This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We're going to turn to the Word of God now. And last week we started a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. We looked at just the first couple of verses. Verses that told us this was a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth and to all the saints in Achaia, not Ikea. And Paul writes and speaks grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we are going to continue on. We're going to read from verse 3 down to verse 4 in chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them up, read along with me, because this is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was so sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I facilitating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spur you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Amen. And we thank God today for his word. As a child growing up in the 1980s, I came to quickly realize that if you ever had any difficulties, there were two avenues for you to pursue. One was the littlest hobo and the other was the A-team. But both were not without their difficulties. The littlest hobo was a dog that showed up when he liked and then disappeared just as quickly. And the A-team were difficult to track down and largely based in the United States of America. And indeed, the A-team began with the ominous words, if you have a problem and no one else can help, and if you can find them, then maybe you can hire the A-team. I never did find the A-team, and the littlest hobo never turned up at the bottom of my garden. But today we do not need to look to fictional characters for our help. And today we do not reach for a cigar box believing that happiness is a cigar named Hamlet. Instead, today, in our search for comfort and peace in these days of trial and affliction, we look unto the Lord. Paul begins his letter by pointing us in that very direction. As these verses begin, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul was no fool. Paul knew that the Christian life was not always going to be sweetness and light. And so he writes to the Corinthians, a church in which he had difficulty and problems, often a divided fellowship, and he writes and he points them to the Lord in their affliction. The other day I had to make a trip to B&M. And I'm sure like you, we are growing sick, sore and tired of pandemics and COVID-19. But even as I walked around B&M, I could hear the music playing in the background and this lovely girl's voice coming through and saying, we're doing our very best in B&M to make these difficult days a little bit easier. Now, I'm not going to criticize B&M. I love it probably more than any man should. Sometimes I just wander the aisles of B&M with a big smile on my face before buying a bedside lamp in the shape of a unicorn. But I just heard that and thought, oh, no more, no more. See, our comfort doesn't need to come 
from B&M, for fictional A-teams, from puppies that wander about the globe helping people. Instead today, in our affliction, we look to the God who is the God of all comfort, according to verse 3. It is the Lord who draws near to us when we are afflicted, according to verse 4. And that in turn gives us comfort and reason to comfort others. The Christian's comfort is found in the Lord. The Christian's hope in affliction and his hope in dark days is found in the Lord. And you see, Paul was no stranger to affliction. Sometimes when we speak of the church that we find here in the New Testament, we do so with flowery language and rose-tinted spectacles. We think that there were no problems in the church in those days. We, we speak of the early church, although that's incorrect as we talk of that. And we look back and say, if only we could be like that early church. My friends, I would imagine if you were a member of the church in Corinth, then you would know what it was like to be in a church that was divided. You would understand what it was to be afflicted and to have slander thrown at you from brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul knew exactly that. He says that we are to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we find from the Lord. That peace that passes all understanding. That grace and peace that we've already spoken about in this letter. We are comforted by God and we are to comfort others. For as Paul goes on, he speaks of what it is to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings in verse 5. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Kim Riddlebarger explains this suffering in a helpful way. He says, We share in Christ's suffering by trusting in his suffering throughout his life, and especially in his death on Calvary, to save us from the guilt and power of our sin. No one suffered more and carried a greater burden than did Jesus. Or in simple terms, when it comes to affliction, when it comes to trouble, whether it's trouble personally or trouble in the local church, we are to lift our eyes on the Christ. Paul knew what it was to be afflicted. Later in this series in 2 Corinthians, we will get into exactly that. But just let me remind you for a second what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says in verse 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the cities, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And he goes on and continues. Paul knew suffering. Paul knew affliction. And Paul knew suffering in Corinth. We've already spoken in this series about how the false apostles were criticizing and haranguing him and seeking to get people not to bother listening to him. And we will see that later on in this very sermon. But Paul's solution for suffering, his solution for affliction, is to look Christward. In verse 8, he says that he does not want the in verse 8, he says that he does not want the Corinthians to be ignorant of the affliction that Paul and his fellow travelers experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened, he writes, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
such powerful language from the apostle. He wasn't writing about a restriction of liberty that meant you couldn't go and see your great Aunt Aggie. He wasn't writing about the absence of toilet rolls in your local convenience store that we experienced six months ago. Paul knew what it was to be afflicted so much so that he despaired of life itself. And my friends, I would be a liar if I said that I haven't met people who have got themselves to that point in their lives. Some of my very good and very dear friends have spoken to me and, and talked about how they wish that the Lord would call them home. That language sounds so crazy to some. We hear it and we think, why, why would you want to die? That life is all there is. Why would you not want to embrace all this world has got to offer and, and live your best life and be the best version of you possible and embrace it and carpe diem, seize the day. But some that I know and some that you know and indeed some listening to this service know exactly what I'm talking about. That sometimes the trouble that comes, sometimes the affliction that afflicts, sometimes the pain that stings, sometimes it becomes so much and so sore and so hard that with the apostle we say, I want to go home. I despair of this life. I despair of the sin. I despair of the hurt. I despair of the lies. I despair of the cancer. I despair of the bad news. I want to be with Jesus. Paul doesn't pull the punches. He helps the Corinthians know that there will be days of affliction and all too often they are followed by more days of affliction. But in those days, Paul writes to them with confidence that this was to make them rely not on themselves, but on the God who raises the dead at the end of verse 9. There's the Christward gaze of this man. There's the attitude that gets him through the affliction and the danger and the peril. There's the attitude that keeps him going when he is betrayed on all sides. There's the attitude that makes him want to come back to Corinth, even though he knows he's going there to people who despise him and want to rob him of any authority or input into this congregation. There's the attitude. It was the Lord who raises the dead that delivered Paul from his affliction. It is the Lord who Paul relies upon in the middle of his suffering. The Lord delivered Paul from a deadly peril, verse 10, and he will deliver us, he says. On him we have set our hope so that he will deliver us again. Paul speaks powerfully and passionately about his hope in the Lord. He knows and understands the days of trouble. He has tasted them and touched them and seen them firsthand. And there are worse days to come for Paul. Church history tells us that he doesn't live long into his old age, but instead he is martyred for his faith, probably in the city of Rome. Paul knows what it is to experience a life that is not always sweetness and light. And his pastoral advice to the Corinthians, look on to Jesus. Look on to the God of comfort, 
the God of grace and peace, the God of all mercy. Look on to the God who in your affliction, who in those moments where you despair of life itself and long for that upward heavenly call, in those moments, look on to the one who will bring you that comfort and that peace and that grace and that mercy. Look on to your great high priest who was tempted and tried in every way, yet without sin. Look Christward and it is there. That you will find your peace. On him says Paul. We have set our hope. Paul doesn't want his brothers and sisters in Corinth. To be ignorant of this. And so Paul the pastor writing to them. Writes in verse 6. If we are afflicted. It is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul calls to his brothers and sisters for patient endurance. And when I preach things like this, I'm always aware of how they come across and how it sounds. Patient endurance. Here's the minister and his ivory tower, six foot beyond contradiction. Here's the minister once again patting us on the head and saying, I'd never worry about your troubles and your afflictions. Patiently endure. We'll see you next week. But I really hope that that's not how this comes across. This is the word of God as we established last week. This is a letter from the apostle to the church of Jesus Christ in every age. And here Paul speaks to these men and women, says, look, in my affliction and in my comfort, I want you to learn from it. And I want you to patiently endure the same sufferings that we have experienced. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. There will be both ahead for this Corinthian church. And indeed, my brothers and sisters, there will be both of those things ahead for our church and for us in our own walk as men and women of faith. Affliction and comfort. Suffering and comfort. Light days and dark days. Good times and bad. These are the things which mark our heavenward walk. And how are we to endure such affliction? How are we to stand days like this of pandemic? Paul speaks to us of patient endurance and prayer. In verse 11, he says to the Corinthians, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. How do we bring comfort to people in affliction? How do we endure the days of difficulty? My friends, we do it by the neglected grace of prayer. Isn't it interesting that when things were normal in our church, and in, I suspect in many churches, that we barely took time to pray. Everything was so busy, out every night of the week, endless meetings, endless discussion, endless debate. And what meeting tended to get squeezed? What meeting was not the highest of priority? The time that the church of God came together to pray. And my brothers and sisters, again, I have no big stick in my hands today. I'm not beating you around the head with this. 
If you look at me and think, I bet you all Scott does every day is sit and read his Bible and pray. I'm sorry to say you've got the wrong man. I am a wretch at times. I'm a man that wonders how a saviour like Christ could die for a wretch like me. But if we learn anything from this time of affliction, this time of COVID, may we learn the necessity, the necessity of prayer. Do not expect your church to grow. Do not expect for uh, days of revival to come. Do not expect your place to be bursting at the seams if prayer is something that only the enthusiasts do. If prayer is something away down the list of priorities. What can you do to help your church? The ministry of the church? How can you help someone who is going through a time of affliction? Pray. Pray that they would have the strength to patiently endure all that lies before them. Pray that the Lord, who is the God of all comfort, will draw near once again and bring them that wonderful, supernatural comfort that only he can provide. Patient endurance, says Paul, and prayer. Here is a man, no stranger to troubles, speaking to us today in 2020, who over these past six months have known our troubles. And today, for those of you listening, and you know who you are, and the Lord knows who you are, and you listen with weak knees that barely get you up out of bed in the morning, you listen with a fearful heart waiting for the next appointment, the next phone call, the next letter, for those of you who truly know this are what it is to be afflicted, I pray that the Lord of comfort will draw near to you. And yours will be a Christward gaze. Because as we have known and heard already in this service, Psalm 34 and verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. But Paul didn't just speak of affliction when he was out on the road. He knew what it was to be under attack in a specific place called Corinth. Here he writes to them for at least the second time and he speaks and defends his ministry among them. Because if it isn't COVID-19 that is afflicting us, then it's guaranteed to be something else. Sometimes in your life you will feel that you cannot do right for doing wrong. Sometimes you will have the best motives and the best intentions and somehow it will get thrown back in your face. Sometimes you will know the reality of the saying, I cannot win. But my brothers and sisters, take heart, take comfort because even a man like Paul, the apostle who, who preaches like no one else and sees uh, churches planted all throughout the known world and sees days of, of great increase in the church, still a man like this, at times he couldn't win. In Corinth, it seems that his ministry was being critiqued and attacked and even something as very petty as his travel plans. Paul writes to the Corinthians in verse 12 and he says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. Paul is no fool and it seems that he understands that perhaps in Corinth he is ministering among a supremely critical sort of bunch. 
And so how does he minister to them? With simplicity and sincerity, with the grace of God, he ministers towards them with integrity. And indeed in verse 13, he hopes indeed that the Corinthians will acknowledge this, that they will not think, no, 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 he's a liar. It was all flashbang and wallop. Instead, as they think of Paul's ministry, Paul understands and knows that they will know that he is a man who has come among them preaching Christ and him crucified and not seeking earthly glory and fame. Paul's conscience does not condemn him, even though the critics do, even though he can't do right for doing wrong. Paul's conscience does not condemn because he knows that before God, this is how he acted. My friends, your motives may always be under attack by those that do not want to give you the time of day. You may be the subject of much gossip here, there and everywhere. Gossip that you will never hear. Gossip that you will never be able to speak to or defend. But take comfort with that Christward gaze that the Lord understands our motives. The Lord knows our hearts. And so in every way, as we deal with one another, as we deal with people, we make pleasing God our aim. And we minister and we speak and we deal with one another with integrity. Paul's ministry was attacked, but his conscience did not condemn him. He knew how he had ministered among these people. And therefore he knew that the lies and the slanders of his opponents would come to naught. But more than this, Paul's uh, travel plans are even critiqued. He wanted to visit them, he says, in verse 16. He wanted to come, as verse 15 says, so that they would have a second experience of grace, so that he could minister among them for a second time. And he planned to visit them on the way to Macedonia and then on the way back from Macedonia. So not only did Paul want to see them once, he wanted to see them twice. But this changes. As things often do in life. Sometimes when you say, oh, I hope to see you on Friday. And Friday comes and you're just busy. Plans change. And so Paul is unable to return to Corinth. Paul is unable to keep the promise. And so what happens? He is accused of facilitating, being a man who's saying one thing and then doing the other. In verse 17, Paul writes, Was I facilitating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, Paul writes, our word to you has not been yes and no. The apostle is attacked for his ministry, and now the apostle is attacked as well for his travel plan. There's no winning going on here. Sure there's not. There's no winning whatsoever. So what does Paul do? Because the temptation at times when we experience the same sort of things is to get the tanks out, to fire the hand grenades, to meet lie with lie, slander with slander, angry fist with angry fist. Where does Paul go? Once more, it is that Christward gate. He says in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So Paul, in the midst of an attack on his integrity and consistency, points to the Lord and says, as surely as he is faithful, as surely as he is constant, as surely as every yes and no with God is yes and no, it can be guaranteed and taken to the bank. This is how I behaved among you. For the Son of God, Paul says in verse 19, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, 
was not yes and no, but in Jesus it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so to this, says Paul, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul knows what it is to be a minister of the gospel. He knows what it is to have the best intended plans, the most pure motives, to make decisions and to say things, thinking only of the glory of God and still to have it thrown back in his face. His response, resting in Christ, the Christward gaze, appealing unto Jesus. For Paul understands that every promise of the scriptures is fulfilled in Christ. That Jesus was no liar who said one thing and then did the other. He was a, a saviour of integrity and consistency. Paul understands that, seeks to minister and act in exactly the same way. And so when the attack comes, Paul rests in Christ. My brothers and sisters, that is not always the easy road to take. It is always the road that we should take. But sometimes we feel much better ranting and raving and firing out our own allegations and accusations. But what does a local church look like? What should it look like? My brothers and sisters, it should be a place of integrity. It should be a place where our yes is yes and our no is no. It should be a place where we don't always jump to assigning the worst possible motives to one another. He did this because. She said that because. It should be a place where we bear with one another. We forgive each other's weakness. We, we call each other to account. We follow the mandate set out by Christ and his word for addressing and dealing with controversy. What we do not do is fire the allegations with not even half of the information. Paul is called a fraud and yet he was a minister of integrity. Paul's travel plans are critiqued and rebuked and yet it was not his plan to fail to visit the Corinthians. How do we act when accused? How should we act when we are the accuser? The Christward gaze. Looking on to Jesus, who all the scriptures point to. Every promise of God is fulfilled in Christ. He is the sinless, spotless, saviour, full of grace and truth and mercy and integrity, who died for guilty sinners like us. The gospel is not just this thing that we proclaim in tents and fields, calling upon people to believe it, although we surely do. The gospel filters its way into every area of our lives. And when we are angry and when we are full of malice and spite towards brothers and sisters in the church, we pause, we stop, and we look on to Jesus. And we are silent. And we consider him. See, he is the one who has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Verse 22. It is the Lord, according to verse 21, who has established us in Christ and has anointed us by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss those two verses in Paul's defense of his ministry and his travel plans. But God is the one who has done this for us. 
And so Paul doesn't lord it over the Corinthians in verse 24, but instead his goal, his motive, his agenda is to increase their joy, to see them standing firm in their faith. See, there's the church. There's the church. It's not a place where we gather to be entertained. It's not a place where we set up organisations that have nothing to do with Jesus. You, you might certainly like to come to the church meeting and, and enjoy playing games and sport with your friends and family. But if there's no spiritual input, then it's not the church. The church is this place where we gather as men and women who need the grace and mercy of God in our lives. We gather to be fed by the word, to attend onto the ordinary means of grace, to look onto Jesus, to know the beauty of our Saviour, to know the consistency and integrity of our Saviour, to know that all the scriptures are fulfilled in our Saviour. The church is the place where we live together and bear up with one another for our mutual joy and affection so that we may stand firm in the faith. May we remember this. As we return, may we remember this perhaps as we hunger for getting back to stuff. What is it that we want to get back to? Is it the busyness? Is it the, 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 the life where we are out every night of the week? Is it the, the life where we are out every night of the week and, and barely pick up the scriptures or, or barely spend time in prayer? Is that the life that we are hungering for? I certainly hope not. I certainly pray that that is not what we become once again as a church. Paul under attack. Paul going through affliction. Paul in ministry. Paul in everyday relationships has the Christward gaze at every point. Knowing of course that as the scriptures are all about Jesus, so our lives and our churches should be all about Jesus. Paul wanted to come and see these Corinthians, regardless of what was said, regardless of the lies, he desperately wanted to see them. But his last visit to them had been a painful one. There had been many difficult issues. And so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Paul knows that the relationship uh, is strained at this point, and so he didn't want to come to make things worse. So instead, he wrote another letter to them. And he says in verse 3, I wrote as I did. It was a, a stern letter, a difficult letter. Some would argue that it was 1 Corinthians that he's talking about here. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Paul wrote the letter instead of that painful visit to them, hoping and praying that the Corinthians would receive the testimony of the apostle and that they would exercise discipline in their local fellowship, that they would address the issues that Paul had highlighted that they would put them right so that by the time Paul came to them, his joy would be the joy of them all. And Paul does not write 
a stern letter or address these issues or exercise church discipline to be some sort of dictator. Instead, he writes to them, verse 4, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause them pain, but to show how much he loves them. There's the apostle, the false teacher, they say, a man who can't be trusted. He says, oh, yes, I'll come and see you. But he didn't never really mean that. A man whose every action was criticized and scrutinized and his motives were always seen as, as motives filled with his own self-agenda and his self-aggrandizement. And instead he writes and says, Corinth, I love you. I love you. And I want the difficulties in your church and the difficulties between you and I to be addressed and dealt with. My friends, if our churches are not prepared to exercise discipline, then we have lost the right to be called a church. If we do not want to address difficulties up front, face to face, under the, the light of the gospel, under the witness and testimony of the Lord, if we're not prepared to do it, then we have become just another social club with a slightly religious element to it. Church discipline is what Paul calls for and what he hopes for so that the relationship between him and these Corinthians will be one of mutual love and affection and joy. Brothers and sisters, there is much in this chapter and a bit, much here that I know I haven't dealt with fully and I've skimmed over, but I, I hope you have seen it and been challenged by it because it is a remarkable passage. And today I call upon you to read it and think about it and pray over it in the days to come. Because there's probably not a single one of us who, as we hear it, will not have known and know days of affliction. There's probably not a single one of us who haven't had moments where we have experienced the lies and the gossip and the slander. What are we to do? When the rumours abound and the lies are told. What are we to do when we think that we cannot win? No matter what we say, no matter where we go, no matter what we think. What are we to do when someone lobs a hand grenade at us that we do not deserve? What are we to do? The word of God shows us. Through the testimony of the Apostle Paul. You see, in verse 14, Paul, in defense of his ministry, takes these Corinthians to the last day, to the day of judgment, a day that all must be ready for, a day that we need to be prepared to meet with Christ. It is the greatest and the grandest day that is lying in front of us. It's, it's not the end of COVID. It's not the next presidential election. It's not whether Boris is going to build a bridge to Scotland so we can get to Ibrox and Ikea a little bit easier. It is the last day, the final day, when all will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, those of you who do not know Jesus, you need to know Jesus because this is a day that lies in store for every one of us. And on that day, those who have not received Christ will be sent away to everlasting punishment. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. 
But Paul takes the Corinthians to that last day. And Paul looks to that day as the day that he will receive his vindication. He looks in that day when he hopes that he will stand as the Corinthians stand and they will delight in one another. Paul speaks of, of boasting in one another. He will look forward to that day when everything is seen in that Christ-saturated light. Because here is the reality for our churches, for us as individuals, for our motives, for our plans, for our words. Here is the reality for the times that your actions are, are scrutinized, always seen as negative. Here is what we think about the last day. Because ultimately, only the opinion of Christ matters. Ultimately, only what Jesus thinks of us matters ultimately the false opinions of others the lies and the slander it will not stand the times they critique your travel plans it will not stand ultimately what christ thinks of us is all that should concern us and so today today our gaze is christward today our gaze is to the final day the day that both the critic and the criticized will see Jesus. Ultimately, my brothers and sisters, those of you inside the church of Jesus Christ and those of you who are outside, to the faithful and to the faithless, the reality is, as the late George Whitfield once said, what we are, the last day will show.